I wonder if you have uh, ever been in the midst of a conflict. I say that facetiously. Um, I wonder if you've ever been in the midst of a church conflict. Found yourself torn uh, between one or two or three leaders in the church who wanted to go in a very different kind of direction. Finding yourself in that place, what do you do? Finding yourself in that place, who do you follow? Why would you choose to follow them? What is the key that you would be looking for to do so? That seems to be a question that needs to be asked over and over again throughout church history because it seems to me that down through the ages, no matter what age or culture the church has found itself in, we have found ourselves conflicted. It's true in our own day in spades. It was true in Paul's day, even in the very first generation. Conflict within the church is simply a given within a fallen world. And the question comes, how do we deal with it? Whom do we follow and why? Paul is uh, talking about that in his last four chapters of his epistle, second epistle to the Corinthian church. Uh, May indeed be his fourth epistle, we just do not know. But this is the context of the passage, that one very short passage we read today. Chapters 10 through 13 of 2 Corinthians is one long uh, appeal from the apostle to the church that he had planted. His preaching had birthed this church. And it's one long plea for them to continue to receive him as their apostle and not go over to someone else. He is writing in the context of uh, what a group he sarcastically calls the super apostles, a group that seems to have followed him and have been radically opposed to his mission and ministry and have sought to undermine his authority within every church that he planted. These guys were a thorn in his flesh, and we'll get into that in a moment. (laughs) So Paul, though, writes this appeal to the Corinthians. And you can see it beginning. I want to just read to you the context, because I think it's important to hear. He starts this in the very first verse of chapter 10. He says, I, Paul, myself entreat you. Right? He's writing through his secretary, but he breaks in and says, no, this is truly me who is writing now. I am writing these words to you myself. I am entreating you. <laughs> Listen to me. And he says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Four chapters, he's going to deal with power and weakness. And he starts off by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I am who humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. That was one of the critiques that he had to be dealing with, that when he is with the Corinthians, he's pretty unimpressive. 
pretty humble in spirit, but when he writes, boy, is he bold. Is he in your face kind of guy? And we can see that by reading his epistles. And Paul is saying, yeah, I know my reputation. That's exactly it. I am humble when face to face, but bold when I am away. He says, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. There is the thing that drives Paul nuts. This is the accusation that the super apostles threw at him to his beloved Corinthian church. Paul is deceiving you. Paul is not acting Christ-like with you. He is walking according to the flesh, just like any other leader. <laughs> you have been deceived and now need to come into the lines. This enrages Paul, absolutely enrages him. And he goes on to say this, for though we walk in the flesh, we are human just like anybody else, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Paul says this is a spiritual warfare at its utmost. This is what we are about. This little dispute that we're having, <laughs> it's war. It is war. And he says, and the weapons of our warfare, what we are using ourselves, are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The weapons that I use that you despise have divine power. And they have a divine power to destroy strongholds that now have come to rest upon you. And these strongholds, he says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's what I'm about. He says, that's what the warfare is all about. I am here in order to break the stronghold that now Satan has upon you. We need to break it with weapons of war that have divine power. And I'm going to take every thought captive being ready to punish every disobedience until your obedience is complete. That's what I'm about here. And I'm going to go this for four chapters until I hope to win this war of words with you, to break down this stronghold that has captured you. And why is Paul doing this? Well, because he knows it's his own spiritual calling. See how he begins chapter 11 of this section. He says, look, I wish you would bear with me with a little foolishness. <laughs> he says, do bear with me. And why? For I feel a divine jealousy for you. I feel a divine jealousy for you. Since I betrothed you, to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. That's his pastoral calling. That's his apostolic calling. 
He knows himself to be the proclaimer of those who goes out in the world to proclaim the gospel, to create the church, so he might present that church as a bride to Christ himself. And he says, I am that one who has been having that calling for you, and I will not rest until it is complete, until you are fully betrothed to the one who is the Christ. He says, but I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's his context. He knows himself to be in a spiritual war, and uh, the, the bounty of this war is the church itself. Will the church be and remain the bride of Christ, or will it become something else? And he says, I am going to wage this warfare in these chapters, hoping against hope that you will be freed from the stronghold that has come placed upon you. They are wonderful chapters. I would encourage you to go home and read them. But we come to our text today, the, the first verses of chapter 12. Uh, and we do so in that context. Because this text, according to Paul himself, uh, describes how he came to embrace the weapons he is now using. That's why this text is here. This is the place it plays in his arguments. This is the key moment for Paul that has shaped his entire life. And we need to hear it as such because he wants us to embrace it as such for ourselves. And so here we are now in chapter 12, our text as it begins, well, we're actually going to start in the first verse of chapter 12, not the second. He says this, he says, I must go on boasting. Uh, not because he desires to do it, but because the Corinthians are forcing him to do it. Uh, they have set the criteria by which he must now fight this war uh, and wage this argument. He says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. Right? It's not my choice, it's yours, but I'm going to play your game. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Again, not because he is interested in these things, but because they are. Uh, this is probably one of the, the criteria that the Corinthians has raised up to say, we want to see who is really the godly leader. Do you have visions? Do you have revelations? And how good are they compared to everybody else's? Paul says, I don't want to go here, but I will go here because my visions and my revelations trumps yours <laughs> by a lot. <laughs> says, I'm going here, I'm gonna, I, want, I don't want to do this, but I am going to do this. There's nothing to be gained, but let me go on. He says, I know a man who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. He talks about himself in the third person, but that's who he's talking about. He says, I know a man who 14 years ago, Paul is writing most likely in the mid-50s, so we're looking at the very early 40s, maybe five years after his conversion or less. Near the beginning of his ministry, this is something that happened to him. He was caught up 
to the third heaven. He goes, whether in the body or on the body, I don't know. God knows. He says, I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Wow. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows, he says. And he says, he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Now again, remember, Paul is writing these things not because he is impressed by them, but because the Corinthians are. Paul is not impressed about these things in the least, even though they happen to him. He says, they're not important. They're not helpful for you. He says, they may have been helpful for me. They're not helpful for you. He goes on to say this, on behalf of this man, the one who had these things happen to him, not because of himself, but simply God chose to happen, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. He says, that's what I want to talk about. You want to talk about visions and revelation, I want to talk about weakness. I want to talk about weakness. He says, though, if I should wish to boast about those visions and those revelations, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. These things did indeed happen to me, right? But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Paul says, these visions and revelation happened to me and me alone. They happened in private. They, they took place in my life. I don't speak about them because they are not helpful for you. What is helpful for you is what you can see in me and hear from me. Things that are visible in my life. Those are the things that find are of help to you, and therefore I will speak of those things and not of the others. And they are helpful for Paul, because not because of what the visions did for him, but how God helped him respond to those visions. And we come now to the heart of his statement. He says, look, to keep me from becoming conceited, Think about that. To keep me from becoming conceited. Here he is, is I'm just going along and God catches me up to the third heaven. God catches me up to paradise. I hear things that no man should be allowed to hear and cannot repeat. Those things happen to me and now I'm back here on earth. And to keep me from being conceited, thinking that there was anything about me that deserved what I just experienced, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A thorn. A messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul never describes what that thorn was. It's a metaphor, obviously. Uh, There's been lots of speculation. 
No one really knows what it is. But for him, it was something physical. It was in his flesh. And it was excruciating. Had to be. You read through these chapters, you know that Paul has a very high threshold for pain. Right? Whipped five times, stoned once, shipwrecked three times. He goes on and on and on. He has a very high threshold for pain, but he did not have a threshold for this pain. He goes on to say, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. This is not a minor thing. Painful. Three times I pleaded with the Lord that it should leave me. But he said to me, God, in the midst of his pain, crying out to him, spoke a word into his life, and it changed his life. And this is the word. God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace, my unmerited favor, uh, mercy, poured in love, poured out on you, even in this, is sufficient for you, and indeed, far greater than what you need. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power, the power that raised Christ from the dead, is made perfect, finds its God-given end in and through weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That broke into Paul's life, and it changed his life. He goes on to describe that change. He says this. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. That's why I do this. Because this word was spoken into my life, and I experienced the grace of God as it was spoken. I knew this was true and true for me and of me. I rejoice, therefore, in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me, may tabernacle with me may be my home around me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions, with calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, remember what Paul is saying here. It's not weakness for the sake of weakness. Weakness is not a good thing in and of itself. This is weakness for the sake of Christ. Because it is God-directed weakness. It's God-directed suffering. It's God-directed sacrifice. And God is infusing himself into and through that weakness with his own power. He says, because this is what God 
does in order to redeem the world, I will let him do it in and through and with me. I embrace this weakness. That's the thing that changed his life. He learned that even as God redeemed the world, God in Christ through the cross redeemed the world through this voluntary self-sacrifice of himself. So now Paul, who is in Christ, will embody that redemption even as he proclaims it. This is who God is, this is what God does, and this is how God redeems and transforms his broken world. Through this God-directed, God-infused weakness, his transforming power flows. That's it. This word shaped Paul's life. Go back and read these four chapters, you can see it shaped his sense of what the apostleship was all about. He was called to suffer, and to suffer greatly. He says, we are the refuge of the world, and that's what we were destined to do, because in that way, as we receive these punishments and do it with grace, we display the power of God. It shaped his apostleship, it shaped his message. This is what he proclaimed, this is what he preached, this is what he embodied. And it shaped his pastoral care, his discipling of others. This is what he was passionate about, and he wanted the Corinthians themselves to embrace for themselves. That's what he desires, because that's what is required for the church to be, become the bride of Christ to embrace this, to embody this way of the cross, even in their own circumstances. That's his point. So I return again to the question that I think I posed at the beginning. How do we know who we should follow in the midst of a conflict? And I think Paul's answer is really quite simple. His answer is, follow the one who walks in the way of the cross. That's it. Follow the one who walks in the way of the cross. Follow the one whose passion is for you to do the same, for you to embrace the way of the cross as the way of life for you. Flee from the one who does not. Flee from the ones who teaches another way, any other way. Because the power of God cannot rest on that one. For God's power is made perfect only through God-directed, God-infused. That's it. That's his argument. Follow the one who walks in the way of the cross. The church is in conflict today. 
uh, Church Universal and our own beloved Anglican Communion in particular. Uh, and each of us, in our own way, must again choose whom we shall follow. Every province must choose, every diocese must choose, every parish must choose, every person must choose. And we must choose thereby the criterion by which we will do so. Coming back from uh, GAFCON a couple weeks ago, um, and encountering in this text, I found myself, again, uh, really touched, not only by Paul's words, but by what um, I found, again, in the GAFCON province, uh, or conference itself. These, uh, the leadership of GAFCON hails mainly from the Global South, uh, and they are indeed walking the way of the cross. There was one session, I think it was Thursday afternoon, that was not publicized uh, because it dealt with the, the persecuted church. Uh, and they had a series of interviews uh, with people from across the communion uh, come up and talk about how they had suffered over time for the way of Christ for, and how they have walked this way of the cross. Uh, it began with uh, an American priest and his wife who talked about their experience of losing their building and being defrocked. Uh, they hailed from uh, upstate New York. Uh, and again, uh, it was painful to hear this. Uh, painful to know that our brothers and sisters are still going through this. The Diocese of South Carolina, uh, the Diocese of Fort Worth are still involved uh, in such fights these days. It is painful to hear that kind of loss and grief. It continued with a woman from Australia, uh, an academic who has lost her position because of her own research that has been based out of uh, the facts of life, but also has been proclaiming the gospel in her own way. She has lost her uh, ability to make a living in her own country. And that, of course, will be increasing, I think, as time goes on. Uh, it will be costly to walk the way of the cross, not just for churches, but for individuals in a society. And that was painful to hear. But the most profound interviews were with those from the Global South. Uh, there was an archdeacon from the, the province of Singapore uh, who got up to speak about the church in Nepal. Singapore as a province has 10 Asian nations under its wing, Malaysia all the way up to Nepal. And he spoke about the, the Nepalese church, this tiny Anglican or community in Nepal. Uh, he says, they have always existed as a persecuted minority. Most of the churches in Asia have existed from their get-go as a persecuted minority within a greater society. Uh, the church in Nepal is persecuted on all levels. The government uh, and their laws persecute them. They have to refrain from doing certain things. The dominant religious cultures are antagonistic to the nth degree against them. Uh, and even their neighbors are not friendly. And they have lived this way ever since they were planted. Persecuted. But he says the amazing thing happened uh, a few years ago with those devastating earthquakes that, uh, that rampaged through Nepal. And he says, as the Church Universal began to send some limited funds to this very tiny church in Nepal, this church chose 
instead of using those funds for themselves, to use it for anybody who asked for it. They gave it to those who had been persecuting them from the get-go. And he says, you have seen a revival of the church and multiple conversions thereof. This church has learned to walk in the way of the cross. It was a glorious thing. But the last and final interview was with a Nigerian bishop. Uh, and the church in Nigeria, uh, as you know from uh, the front page news these days, uh, is dealing with uh, insurgent Islam. Uh, I was in a, um, a, a prayer group uh, after the morning prayer with a, a bishop and his wife from northern Nigeria. And the very first morning, when we asked for prayer requests, he said, I heard last night that 60 of my own people were killed last night. There's been thousands of Christians killed over the last 10 years in Nigeria. He says 60 were killed last night. Archbishop Ben Kwashi, um, who returned from GAFCON as the general secretary of GAFCON, the very night he returned, his own compound was attacked and his driver, his good, good friend, was killed his own cattle taken. I mean, these are daily occurrences for the church in Nigeria. But the man that they chose to interview was a bishop in northern Nigeria who has a price on his own head because he himself is a convert from Islam. He became a Christian and then was gifted and raised up to become a bishop in the church in the region that is most affected by insurgent Islam. And he spoke um, with passion about the sufferings of his people. He talked about how many of his own family have been killed. He talked about how many attempts there have been on his own life. But the amazing thing to me was there was not an ounce of anger in this man, nor an ounce of fear, and simply absolutely not any kind of self-pity. He spoke with joy at the opportunity to serve his Lord in this way. And he says, I trust I will serve him with this joy until the day he calls me home most likely through an assassin's bullet, right? This is the leadership of GAFCON. They blow me away at what they have learned in their very difficult situations. They know what Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians. They too have heard God say, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power, my transforming power, is made perfect through weakness. Through your willing embrace of the weakness that I lead you into. And the way you embrace that weakness as I lead you into. 
The leadership of Grafton has much to teach us here in the church. The churches of Grafton have much to teach us here in the West. The question is, will we listen to them? Will we follow them? Will we be shaped by the things that shape them? Will we learn to walk in the way of the cross ourselves? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Let us pray.